Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to the Story Podcast. Today, I have on a uh, one of my well, one of my childhood inspirations, Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is an international recording artist, published author, actor, and leader of the Daryl Davis Band. Born in the electric blues capital of the world, Chicago, Illinois, Daryl absorbed the influences of the South from musicians who traveled north from the Mississippi Delta, Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Missouri to this blues mecca. Daryl Davis earned his Bachelor of Music degree from Howard University in Washington, D.C., where he was a member of the world-famous and renowned Jazz Vocal Ensemble. In addition to being a vocalist, guitarist, and composer, Daryl is a keyboard extraordinaire. Upon graduation, Daryl went to work with such artists as Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley's Jordanaires, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Platters, The Drifters, The Coasters, Bo Diddley, Percy Sledge, and Slam, Slam, Sam Moore, just to name a few. He is not white, he is not even light-skinned, makes no mistake about it, he's black, yet Daryl Davis has come in closer contact with members of the Ku Klux Klan than most whites and certainly most blacks, short of being on the wrong end of a rope. What's more... He continues to do so, making him one of the most unique lecturers on the speaking circuit today. On a quest to do nothing more than explore racism and gather information for his book, Clan Destined Relationships, Daryl Davis eventually became the recipient of numerous robes and hoods given to him by KKK members who rescinded their beliefs after coming to know him. He had inadvertently stumbled upon a successful method of forming friendships between sworn enemies. As a race relations expert, Daryl Davis has received acclaim for his book, Clandestine Relationships, and has his work in race relationships from many respected sources, included, including CNN, NBC, NBC, Good Morning America, The Learning Channel, National Public Radio, The Washington Post, The Baltimore Sun, and many others. He is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the highly prestigious Elliott Black Award and the Bridge Builder Award presented by the American Ethical Union and Washington Ethical Society, respectively, to name a few. Daryl, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So I'm curious, where did your love of music start? Well, I think it probably started when I was around three years old. Uh, we always had music in the house. Uh, my parents had a lot of records, uh, and they had a wide variety of records. My mom um, played a little bit of piano. My dad played a little, a little bit of piano and saxophone. But they weren't professionals. They weren't out, you know, doing gigs, anything like that. They played for their own amusement and while uh, in school. So I, I heard music growing up. And uh, <clears throat> interesting thing about it with me was that my musical tastes were not in sync with my peers mm. because my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up as an American embassy brat. And so I, did, I spent a lot of time as a young kid overseas. And how it works is you get assigned to a country for two years, and uh, then you come back home here to the States. You're here for a few months, and then you get assigned to another country for two years. Well, some of the countries to which we were assigned um, – the music you would hear on the radio over there, when you would hear American music, it was anywhere from three to five years behind us. Mm. So in other words, um, in 1961, when I was three years old, I'm 64 now, I was born in 1958. 
and so in 1961, I was here overseas. I was hearing music from the 50s, right? While by whereby my peers over here were hearing, you know, stuff from 1961. You know, um, you know, the Supremes. You know, the uh, the Motown sound, the Beach Boys. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, a, a couple years later, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. And I, so I was always five years behind, and I wouldn't hear that current music until I would come back here. And by that time, those would be like, you know, out of date, out, you know, outdated. So what was it like to journey uh, forward and backwards in time so often? Well, I mean, I knew nothing else at the time. So to me, it was the norm. Hmm. I thought every kid did it. Um, but I'll tell you what, you know, today, today as a professional musician and lecturer, I, I perform all over the world and I lecture all over the world. I've played in all 50 of our states. And when you combine my childhood travels, uh, and I spent a lot of time traveling overseas to different countries with, you know, with my parents as an embassy kid. When you combine my childhood travels with my adulthood travels, I have now been in a total of 61 countries on six continents. Um, you know, to me, growing up, that was the norm. I thought every kid did it. Now, every kid did it in, within the American embassy, because, mm. you know, and, as well as other kids, you know, that I would go to school with, because... My classes were filled with kids from all over the world. Anybody who had an embassy, wherever we were assigned, all of their kids went to the same school. So all of us kids did that. I didn't realize that you know, my peers back home did not necessarily do that. And while I appreciated seeing all these different things, I've been to the Berlin Wall. I've touched the Berlin Wall. I've been inside the pyramids. I've been inside the Sphinx. You can go inside those? Yes, you can, absolutely. Okay, I've been along the trail in Damascus, Syria, where Jesus allegedly walked. I've been, you know, to, to I've been, I, I put my, my hand in the Nile River, you know, all kinds of things. I've been in the Eiffel Tower. I've seen the Mona Lisa from five feet away. Uh, before, you know, today she has a glass of course, thing yeah. around her because somebody threw something on her. Okay, but uh, back then, you know, you could walk right up to it. Um, so I've seen all those things, and. I appreciated them at the time, but later I would appreciate them a lot more because I realized when I was back home and we were studying world history in grade school and class, I realized that most of the people sitting around me, the closest they would ever come to those things were the pictures in the textbook. I had actually been to those things. It did not make me a better person, a better human being than anybody. But what it did was it gave me a better and broader perspective of humanity to actually be in those spaces and talk with those people, touch those things or see them, be able to just be in the, in the presence. That's amazing. So at what point did you decide to uh, pick up the piano and just to <laughs> do that more often? Well, uh, that was another left turn. <laughs> As a kid, for the longest time, I had two... Uh, vocational aspirations, if you will. And each uh, occupation was pulling at me with equal force in opposite directions. Hmm. So I was immobilized. I couldn't go either way because the force was equal, right? And one vocation was I wanted to be a spy. My hero was James Bond. And I wanted to be a James Bond. And on the other side, I wanted to be a computer programmer. Now, you've got to understand something. Back then, computer, computers took up 
you know, more room than this whole yeah. this whole uh, area here. And I knew that uh, that there was money to be had in computers. I knew they were the wave of the future. I knew they would get smaller. I never dreamed, you know, they would get as as small as our this, cell phone. Right. Um, but uh, and and they will get smaller than this eventually, right? You have Apple phone. Yeah, there the you watches. go on the watch now. So um, I wanted to to do both of those, and and I struggled for a few years trying to figure out well how can I do both? How can I do both? And back then there was no way to do both. You had to do one or the other. Mm-hmm. Today, of course, you can do both. It's called cyber espionage, but that term didn't even exist back then. So. I thought about people that I really, truly admired, and almost instantly, two names came to mind. One was Elvis Presley, and the other one was Chuck Berry. Now, what was I so fascinated by these guys with? It was that the fact that those two guys, Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley, had made millions upon millions of people all over the world happy with their music. They had touched them with their music. People that they would never meet. People that they knew nothing about. But that, but their music had touched them. Who has never heard an Elvis Presley or Chuck Berry song? Who has not danced to that music or sang along with it? You know. And how many of those people have ever seen Elvis or seen Chuck? Mm. If you're lucky enough, maybe you got to see a concert or saw them on TV. But how, how, many, how many got to see them in person? How many got to meet them? Very few, right? Well, guess what? That became my dream. You know what? I like that idea of making people happy, people that I don't even know. So I decided I'm going to go into music, despite the fact that I didn't even play. Right. Yeah. And so even in in high school, I didn't play. I was was never in marching band, concert band, jazz band. I couldn't play. And the only thing I could do was join the choir (laughs) and sing. (laughs) So, But I had friends who were in, uh, in those bands. And some of my friends had little uh, rock and roll bands outside of school. And they would show me little stuff. And I'd go home and practice it. And, you know, back then we used records, right? Mm-hmm. And so I put on the record and listen to it and back up the needle, put it on again, and try to copy what I'm hearing. So, you know, learn to play by ear. And uh, I was, you know, beginning to get that. And then I went out and bought books to teach myself how to read music. So I learned how to read music. And then by the time, uh, in, in 11th grade, I decided, you know, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to go to college and major in music. And um, my parents had a fit. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, they were not happy at all. Not that they didn't like music, but, you know, in retrospect, you know, music is a, it's a hard uh, vocation to make a living it's doing. very hard. You know, most, most musicians have another job. Um, I want to be a full-time musician, make my living doing that. And, uh, you know, they tried to talk me out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. They were unsuccessful. And I went to college. I had to audition uh, to get into music school. I auditioned for three places, and I was accepted at all three. And, um, but I had bad habits, you know, being self-taught, using mm-hmm. the wrong fingering, the wrong hand positions, things like that. So I had to relearn that in school, and I did. But I graduated four years later with my degree uh, in jazz performance. And um, now that's what I do, you know, full time. And I've been around the world. I've been around the country uh, playing music, making a living doing it, and I still do. So tell me about uh, the college you went to, why you chose that college, and the most influential experience you have from that college. 
Well, let's see. I auditioned for uh, Berkeley School of Jazz in Boston, Morehouse uh, University in Atlanta, and uh, Howard University in Washington, D.C. And I was accepted at all three. I chose Howard University because it was closer to home. Mm. And also, uh, it was, at the time, um, the premier uh, black university in the country. And most of the schools that I had I, I'd gone to throughout my life were either international or, or predominantly white. And, you know, uh, you know, racism was a lot more prevalent back then. It's still prevalent today, but it was a lot more prevalent back then. And uh, I'd never been to a predominantly black school, so I wanted to do that. I've been to predominantly white schools. I've been to international schools. So let me try this one. And so what different experience did I give you, if, if any different experience? Do you oh, think? absolutely. Uh, we learned things there that you did not learn in, uh, in predominantly white schools. Um, you know, in a lot of white schools that I went to, history was skewed. Mm. It was uh, revised. It was rewritten or even omitted and, and patently lied about and false. So uh, we learned the truth. In, uh, in, in black universities. For, for example, um, just to give you a, a general example, in high school, I'm 64, mm -hmm. in high school we did not learn, uh, in white schools even, that uh, we had internment camps for Japanese Americans in this yep. country. That was not in our history books. I did not learn that until college, <laughs> in a black college. All right. I was like incredulous. No way. I mean, that, that's over in Nazi Germany. No, no, no. Right. No, no, no. It was here. No, I didn't believe it. I went and asked my parents and said, yeah. In our history books uh, in high school, we learned that um, uh, Admiral uh, Robert, um, Robert Perry discovered the North Pole. Not so. Not so. Not so. Okay. My parents told me it was Matthew Henson, a right? Gentleman, right? A, black, a black explorer who was uh, Perry's best friend. Perry got sick on the exploration and told, told Henson to go on. And when uh, Henson discovered the North Pole and he and Perry came back here to the, to, to the States, uh, Perry told everybody it was Matthew Henson. They said, no, 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 we have to give it to you. And they refused to give it to Perry based on racism, mm -hmm. all right? Um, finally, finally, years later, in, in the 1980s, uh, uh, President Reagan signed, signed some, something. Curtis Scott King and some other people uh, petitioned Reagan and he finally signed this stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, Matthew Henson was buried in a pauper's grave. Mm. And uh, Admiral Perry was buried over there at Arlington Cemetery. So finally, when Reagan signed this thing, Henson's body was, was exhumed, and he was buried. He's now buried next to his friend, Admiral Perry, over in Arlington Cemetery. All right? And the history books have been changed. So say, if it's giving you any consult, I'd learn about the... Uh the uh, the first event you were talking about, the uh, the jazz, Japanese internment camp, mm -hmm. camps. Uh, one one of the things that really shocked me at post you know high school education was the the bombing of Black Wall Street down in right. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa race riots. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Why isn't that in um, predominantly white schools? It's a shameful mark mm -hmm. on our history, you know. But everybody has history. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the shameful. Mm -hmm. And it all needs to be taught. Okay, we can't revise, omit, delete, you know, just to make ourselves look good. We must turn all cards face up on the table and address those issues so they don't repeat themselves down the road.
So back to back to the music side of things. Uh, and Howard, did you go for piano or voice? My major was was uh, I mean my, you have to declare an instrument. Right. So my major was jazz performance. My main instrument was voice, and uh, so my uh, I minored in voice, and and my my instrumental instrument was piano. Mm. So at at what point did you start to really dive deep into the piano and dive deep into uh, your studies of that instrument? <laughs> well, um, you know, there, there was no such thing as, a, as majoring in rock and roll. Of course. Right? And most schools uh, did not offer anything other than classical. Well, Howard University and the other two I mentioned, you know, they offered degrees in jazz as well. Well, jazz was a lot closer to, to what I was interested in than, um, than uh, you know, classical music. Mm -hmm. And so I loved the music of uh, Elvis and Chuck and Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, you know, the early rock and roll people. And so in order to play, and a lot of that music is improvised. Right. And that's the basis for jazz is, impro is improvisation. Even the term jazz can be a synonym for improvisation. Like, for example, you know, if you're playing something or you're decorating something and it's just kind of bland, you say, you need to jazz it up a little bit, meaning, you know, spice it up, do something, yeah. improvise something, right? So, um, uh, you know, so I, I chose jazz as a major. And um, because those, those early rock and rollers were my, my heart and soul, in order to play that kind of music, you have to listen to what they listen to. Yeah, sure, you can copy them, and all you're doing is just duplicating them. But, you want to understand but if you want to get the feel of it, right. you gotta, you got to go to where they got it from. And, and before Chuck Berry, there was no rock and roll. All right? So what were they listening to? Blues, country, jazz, big band, you know, that kind of thing. So I began listening to that boogie-woogie. And I, so I began listening to all these piano players, because my goal was to play with Chuck Berry. <laughs> right, mm -hmm. and um, so I began listening to that piano music, you know that I, that I would hear on on the other side, uh, on uh, within Johnny B. Good or Roll Over Beethoven, all those great Chuck Berry uh, songs. You know, wow, man, if I can play piano like that, maybe one day I can play for Chuck Berry. Right, that was my my pipe dream, as they call it. Right, mm -hmm. and uh, I began listening to a lot of boogie woogie, and Muddy Waters was a big influence on Chuck Berry. Muddy Waters uh, helped create the Chicago blues sound. A lot, of, a lot of the people in Chicago who created that Chicago blues sound came from Mississippi because, you know, there was no work, especially for black people in Mississippi. And a lot of them in the 1940s and things, you know, migrated north mm -hmm. you know, where there was more opportunity for blacks. It wasn't equal by any means, but it was more than it was in Mississippi. Of course. Right? So uh, Muddy Waters was one of those people. And uh, he took the Delta blues sound and, uh, out, of, uh, out of the Mississippi Delta, he played acoustically, plugged it into amplifiers in Chicago, and, you know, helped create the electric blues sound. And so um, he was one of Chuck Berry's idols, and he gave Chuck Berry his start. So naturally, I began listening to Muddy Waters, and I liked that piano I heard on there. Uh, some of it I heard was Otis Spann. Some of it I heard was uh, Pine Top Perkins. And so I went to see Muddy Waters, and lo and behold, he had Pine Top Perkins on piano. It had got, you know, back, back then, 
uh, if you go back and you look at a lot of albums, the, the original albums and, and 45, the sleeves, uh, they did not have the pictures of the black artists on the, right. on the yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. uh, white radio stations wouldn't play them. Right. If they saw it was a black artist, right? So uh, I didn't know what any of these people looked like, you know, until I actually got there. Oh, okay, that's what he looks like. Okay. I mean, I knew they were black, you know, but I didn't know what they looked like. And um, I got to meet Pine Top Perkins. We became good friends. Uh, he would come here to my house. He would uh, show me how to play piano. You know, when he was in town with Muddy Waters, then he'd end up staying with me. Same thing with Johnny Johnson, Chuck Berry's piano player. I, I would get to meet him. We would become good friends. In fact, both of them called me their godson. And they both would stay with me and show me how to play. And that's how I learned that style, you know, informally outside of my formal education in college. So uh, how did you get into direct contact with, with these people? What, what happened? What did you do or, or what miracle happened that you were able to talk to Chuck Berry and all of these amazing musicians? Well, the first time I met Chuck Berry, uh, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a, a major meeting. Uh, I was there, I shook hands, that was it. But um, he was, he was uh, going to perform at a place called Coalfield House at University of Maryland. And uh, it's where the concerts are play, played, are performed, and the basketball games are played. And it was Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I went down there. I wanted, you know, well, my, my first dream was I wanted to see my idol. Of course. You know, and I wanted to meet him, which is a little harder to do. You know, he's a superstar. And, you know, same thing with Elvis. You know, all these people, or not all of them, but, but most of them. Um, so I, I went down there early like at 12 noon. And uh, people were like loading in the uh, lights and the amplifiers, not amplifiers, the speakers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just walked in. And I hid, for, I was a kid. I hid for a little while. I hid and then this band showed up and uh, they were gathered by the stage. Uh, supposedly there was gonna be a sound check at two o'clock. And they seemed to think that um, Chuck Berry was going to be there for the sound check and rehearse them. Because the way it worked was the, the promoter, whoever hired Chuck Berry, had to supply a band to back him. Right. At that point, Chuck was not traveling with a band. And so, you know, he would have different bands every night from wherever, you know, the promoter supplied the band. Sometimes the promoter would try to cut corners and get some terrible band. You know, other times, you know, he'd spend the money and get a good band. Um, but anyway... So the band was sitting around uh, waiting for 2 o'clock to show up and for Chuck to show up, and they were nervous. Uh, you know, they never played with Chuck Berry. And, um, you know, Chuck, well, he, he's, you know, he's bigger than life, and he had a reputation of sometimes, you know, being, being difficult. Mm. Uh, I never found him to be, not with me at least. But uh, anyway, so they were very nervous. And so 2 o'clock, you know, it's, it's getting closer to 2, and uh, Chuck hadn't shown up. And this, you know, back then there were no, no cell phones, right? Right, of course. So uh, anyway, um, 2 o'clock rolls around, still no Chuck Berry. And uh, the promoter is kind of, you know, getting a little edgy. And uh, so the band goes on stage. They're doing their sound check. And I, I come out of hiding since then. I'm hanging over there near the band. So I figure when Chuck comes, he'll go you know, where the band is by the stage. And I get to meet him. So they go on stage and they, do, they run through a bunch of Chuck Berry songs for their sound check. And these guys sounded great. I mean, just fantastic. And so, uh, anyway, they, you know, they finished the soundtrack, come off, still no Chuck Berry. 
it gets later and later. And then, you know, I don't know, around uh, 7 o'clock or so, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis comes in. And I met him when he came in, went down to his dressing room. And then um, he goes on. There's still no Chuck Berry, right? Now, everybody is there to see Chuck Berry. Of course. It's like a sold-out concert. And place is jam-packed, and the promoter is like, you know, he's not knowing what to do. Now, nobody bothered me because I've been there all day at this point, and people just figured I belonged. Right. Right? I'm just a little kid. You figure I belong to somebody. I'm just, you know. Anyway, <clears throat> um, he's not knowing what to do, and he's down in his office. We kept coming back and forth to the stage down to his office. Well, um, Jerry Lee goes on, and Chuck's supposed to go on right after Jerry Lee. And so the band is, like, freaking out like, you know, what are we going to do if he doesn't show up, you know, et cetera. Well, about, a, you know, I think, he, I think Chuck went on, it was supposed to go on at 9 o'clock. Well, about a quarter of 9, in walks Chuck through the backstage door, just by himself, no guitar, nothing, just walked in. And he walked, I, I had to be standing right, right near there. He walked right by me. And I just froze, like, oh, my God, that's him, you know? And I, I've been thinking all day long about what am I going to say to my idol? And there he was, and I froze. I didn't say anything, right? <laughs> right yes. So he, you know, he, he didn't even notice me. He was like, you know, walk right past me. And he went down a little ways, and he saw somebody standing, you know, a little way from the stage, apparently some guy who worked there. And, he, and I saw him talking to that guy, and the guy pointed in another direction and down this hall, and Chuck went down there. That's where the promoter was. The, I guess he was asking the guy, where is the promoter? And so the guy pointed, and Chuck went that way. He was in there for a little while, and then he came out of that office. He walked right back by me again. Not, didn't, you know, the band is over here by the stage, and, and the door is right there near the stage. Mm -hmm. He walked right out the door, and there's a parking lot backstage there, right? He went out that door. I'm thinking to myself, huh? You know, he came in, and he walked out. And, and then he, but then about two minutes later, he came back in carrying his guitar in the guitar case. And so I realized, you know, and in retrospect, he went to get paid. Right. He gets paid in advance. He doesn't even take his guitar out of the car until he gets paid. It's a rental car. He flies in, gets a rental car, drives to the gig, right? So once he got paid, he goes back and gets his guitar. He comes in, right? So I was now he comes over by the band. So I, I just move over that way. He shook everybody's hand, including mine. And uh, the band, the, the the leader of the band says, "Hi, Mr. Barry. Um, my name is Bruce Springsteen." And um, you know, no one ever heard of Bruce Springsteen back then. At that then. point, right, yeah. yeah. It was this band from, you know, uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey, had, that had come down to, uh, that had been hired to back up Chuck Berry. And, um, you know, he says, uh, you, know, we, you know, we thought you were coming in around 2 o'clock to, to rehearse during the sound check. Chuck said, no. And he says, so Bruce says, um, you know, I, I, I didn't even know these people. You know, I, just, I, I said hello, but I didn't know them. Of course. And um, uh, Bruce says, oh, yeah, you know, so... Um, do you know what songs you know you want to play? And Chuck says, "I think I'll play some Chuck Berry songs." That's all he said, right? And, and you know, he's saying that while he's tuning up his guitar, right? And he walks on stage right at nine o'clock, right? And I mean, the band follows him on. He doesn't cue them to anything. He just starts ba da 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 da, right? So usually his intros are either four bars or two bars on the guitar. So you have four bars or two bars 
to figure out what key he's in. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and so uh, you know, unless you have perfect pitch, you know, you gotta, you know, do your, you know, do your thing here. And um, so, and then you come in on bar five, and you're playing. And these guys did a did a fantastic job, fantastic job, you know. And then a, you know, a couple years later, a few years later, Bruce is on the cover of Time magazine. You know, he become the boss. Boss, oh, yeah. That's crazy. Um, Having that front, dude, I can imagine the pressure of coming in and, and figuring out, okay, uh, I know these songs, but how is he going to play them? Right. And see, that, you know, you nailed it. That is the key. And that's what got me the gig, hmm. you know, or, or the continuing gig, I should say. Um, a lot of people who, who, uh, who get the job to back up Chuck Berry, they make the mistake of listening to Chuck Berry's greatest hits. Well, you should do that. Yes, absolutely. Listen to, listen to his greatest hits. Learn the format mm -hmm. of each song. Sweet Little Sixteen, Johnny Be Good, you know, School Days, whatever. Learn the format of the songs. But don't commit yourself to doing them just like that. You've got to follow Chuck Berry. He's been playing those songs for 50 years. He doesn't do them the same way. He gets tired of, of playing them the same way. They're his songs. He wrote them. He can do whatever he wants to do with them. So you've got to follow him. Don't walk on stage thinking you're going to play it just like the record. You're not. Okay. Chuck is the ultimate improviser. You know, he improvises stuff on the fly. You know, and so that was the key. When I, when I got my first gig with Chuck Berry, so I, I, I tell you that story. Um, <clears throat> I've seen him play numerous times. I'd write him letters. And um, tell him, you know, that uh, I, one day I want to play with him. Um, I'm majoring in music, this, that, and the other. I told him my, the whole, my, my whole story. And um, he never wrote me back. On my 18th birthday, I received a telegram from him. A telegram? A telegram. And it said, happy birthday, Daryl. Best, best wishes, Chuck Berry. Man, oh. that just made my whole year. I was about right? to say, yeah, that's a and birthday so, gift and a half. Um, Chuck was coming to Baltimore to perform. The last gig that he played in Baltimore, I wasn't there. Uh, it was a couple years pr prior to my gig. Um, he ended up kicking the band off the stage because they were so bad. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and he called some people out of the audience to get them to play with him. You know, I mean, that's how, that's how bad the band was. You know, wow. the, the, the drummer was not paying attention. You know, uh, Chuck would, would cue to stop. And the drummer kept playing, you know. So Chuck just kicked him off the stage and asked if anybody in the audience played drums. And some guy got up and played drums, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, I wasn't Welcome at that concert, but you know, there have been a lot of stories about that. So now he's coming back to Baltimore. So I called the promoter, and I said, listen, you need to hire my band. I said, I know more about Chuck Berry's music than anybody. It's not about playing his songs just like the record. I can do that. I said, but it's knowing how to follow Chuck, knowing his body language, knowing the little nuances. And the guy realized I knew what I was talking about. He says, you've got the gig. He said, can you hire? Because uh, in the contract, it requires, Chuck's contract requires a, a piano player, a bass player, and a drummer. Mm -hmm. He says, okay, I'm going to hire you. Can, you. can you get the other guys, the bass player and the drummer? I said, sure. So I put it together, I rehearsed the band, I got them all tight, 
I said, but now don't commit yourself. You know, this is the way it goes. But, you know, let's try a couple different things here because I've seen him enough times to know his body language. When he leans this way, he wants that, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. When he puts his foot down, you know, if you're playing, it means, it means stop. If you're not playing, when he puts his foot down, it means start, you know. So I cued him on all that. And when we came and we did the gig, you know, he, he was surprised to see me. And he goes, oh, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, he told the promoter that that was the band. He, he liked it. He told his agent out in, uh, in California, you know, whenever I play in that area, hire this guy, Daryl Davis. Tell the promoter to hire this guy. So the agent began calling every promoter, you know, up and down the East Coast um, to call me. And so they would call me, and then the agent would call me himself. And then later on, Chuck would call me and say, hey, are you available this day, that day, or whatever? And I'd say, yeah, or no, or whatever, and do the gig. That's incredible. And so I did, I did mostly the East Coast, some Midwest. What do you think was one of the most valuable things you learned from Chuck Berry? Oh, there were so many, so many. Um, Music-wise and business-wise, get your money up front. Yeah. Um, you know, learn how to read and write a contract. Mm. You know, he got ripped off, you know, back in the 50s. But he was the kind of guy who would not let a, a dog bite him twice. You know, he learned the first time. And so, um, you know, I pride myself on saying, yes, I went to Howard University and got a degree in music, but I really went to the Chuck Berry School of Music. <laughs> you know? um, and that has been the key to my success as a musician. Um, I'm not saying that, you know that uh, I'm a better musician or greater musician than anybody else, but if you don't know the business, you're gonna fail. You know, you might you might have a, a platinum record on, on the charts, uh, everybody knows your name, but you don't have one penny in the bank. Mm-hmm. And there's so many musicians like that. Their managers, their agents, club owners, whatever, exploit them, and so they're well known, but they don't. Have, but you know, they don't have any money. And when they get sick, they don't have any insurance. You know, how, how many times, you know, do you, do you see musicians doing benefits for each other? Right. So what is, uh, how did you evolve past Chuck Berry? What was, what was the stuff you were doing maybe in between I didn't know there or? was anything past Chuck Berry. Really? No. <laughs> so, but uh, what, what, what was the, the next step afterwards? Did you work with Jerry, Jerry, Lulu, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bo Diddley? Uh, yeah. Um, I've done work with the coasters and the platters, the drifters. A lot of times, you know, these people would refer you mm. to, uh, to, 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 their, to their contemporaries. Like, you know, when I worked with the uh, coasters and the drifters, you know, they referred me to the platters. Say, so, hey, you know, when you play in the DC, you know, call this guy Daryl Davis. You know, he, he has a good band, blah, blah, blah. The guys read the charts, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I would get these calls. And it would just, you know, snowball. And so I became one of, you know, one of the go-to people. Um, you know, so we had we had gigs with different people, even country artists, uh, rock and roll people, blues artists, uh, etc. Now, now some bands are self-contained. You know, they come with their whole whole group. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, whole musicians as well as the singers, and others they just bring the singers and they bring one, uh, their musical director. So they what they do is the club or whatever hires a local band, and the the musical director for the group passes out charts. Mm. To, to the guys, and we all read them and play whatever we have to play. He comes in a few hours early, rehearses up, and then we go on stage and boom. Like for example, um, I played on uh, on uh, David Letterman with uh, with Chuck, and um, this was a funny story. 
I had not planned on playing. Um, Chuck was going to be on Letterman, and uh, I called him up, and I and I said, "Hey, um, you know, I'm going to come up to uh, to New York, and hang out with you." He goes, "Okay, yeah, yeah, you know, that'd be cool." I said, "Okay, well, make sure you know you you, uh, you know, leave my name on the guest list or whatever." He said, "All right." So I went up there early, and I got to the theater where where Letterman you know tapes the shows, and um, I went you know to to the the backstage thing, there was security there, and I said, yeah, I'm a guest at Chuck Berry's, and they said, uh, well, what's your name? And he looked on the list, and my name was there, and um, he says, well, Mr. Berry's not here yet, but you're welcome to go to his dressing room, or you can go to the green room, or whatever, and I said, okay, so um, I went to the green room for a minute, and then I went up to the uh, dressing room, and a little while later, Chuck comes in, and he and I just sitting there, you know, you know he, he doesn't bring a band for that, because you know, you have Paul Schaefer's band, mm -hmm. which is the greatest, greatest band in the world. Of course. Right? Okay, so uh, I'm sitting there just talking with him, just, you know, BSing and stuff. And this lady comes in, and she's the producer for his segment. And because each segment has a different producer or something, right? And so she comes in, and she has her little clipboard. She goes, hi, Mr. Barry. Um, you, know, you know, welcome back, blah, blah, blah. So apparently he'd been on there before. Mm -hmm. And um, she says, let's see. I have you uh, slated to do Roll Over Beethoven. And Chuck says, no, 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 I'm going to do Let It Rock. And she, like, flips through her pages. She goes, well, um, it says here, uh, uh, Roll Over Beethoven. Chuck said, like I said, I'm going to do Let It Rock. And she says, well, um, uh, Mr. Schaefer is downstairs rehearsing the band on, on Roll Over Beethoven, meaning Paul Schaefer, right, mm -hmm. the band leader. And um, Chuck says, points at me and says, this is Daryl Davis. He's my piano player. And she got flips to her pages. <laughs> uh, I, I don't see Mr. Davis's name. It says here, slated, uh, Paul Schaefer is on piano. Like I said, this is Daryl Davis. He's my piano player. Daryl, give her your social security number so you can get paid. I'm like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm a member of the union. And so I gave her my social security number. And she says, oh, well, um... Mr. Barry, you know, do you want to come downstairs and, and rehearse uh, Mr. Schaefer and tell them, you know, you, you, you changed the song or whatever? Chuck says, Daryl, you know, go, go downstairs and, and, you know, get them straight on Let It Rock. So I go downstairs, and um, I'm rehearsing, you know, the band with Paul Schaefer. Well, first, let me, let me say this. Paul Schaefer is one of the greatest, and I mean bar none, bar none, one of the greatest and most humble and undercredited musicians out there. Hmm. I'd put him up against anybody, bar none, okay? He is a super nice, brilliant musician and humble as anything. And uh, so I follow this lady down, and she introduced me to Paul. She goes, you know, Paul, you know, this is Mr. Barry's piano player, Daryl Davis, blah, blah, blah. Mr. Barry wants Daryl to play. And um, Paul says, absolutely, you know, whatever, you know. And he, he says, I got three keyboards, you know, which one do you want? And I looked at them, and I said, okay, I'll take that one over there. And um, he says, fine. And then he says, hey, do you think it would be okay if while you're playing the, the piano, uh, I play the organ? I said, sure. So Paul was on organ. I'm, a, I'm on piano, piano keyboard. And uh, anyway, so I rehearsed him through Let It Rock. Chuck came down and sat in the audience. I mean, the audience wasn't in there yet. Of course. You know, but he sits oh, yeah. out in the, in the audience seating. And he's watching, watching me rehearse. He didn't come over and play. <laughs> so anyway, we rehearsed uh, Let It Rock. And then um, later on, it's time. And uh, so, so Paul asked me, he says, you know, do you want to stay up with us? 
and, and play, you know, uh, on the on the uh, what do you call those things, the the uh, stingers, you know, the mm. you, you know before mm -hmm. people come on when the when you go to commercial break and all that kind of stuff. I said sure. I mean, he offered me you know, to to do that. I mean, who does that? Right. Paul Schaefer does that. Okay. So anyway, um, I did that, and um, it was time for us. So I'm on stage, and uh, David Letterman introduces Chuck Berry. Chuck comes on, and we do Let It Rock. And then we go to commercial break. And during the commercial, you know, the audience is there. Mm -hmm. During commercial break, um, the, the, the band plays for the audience. You know, you don't see them, but the oh. band plays for the audience during the commercials. And so David Letterman comes over to us, uh, over to Chuck, and says, hey, would you mind playing Roller of Beethoven for my audience during the commercial? Chuck says, sure. But da 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 <laughs> goes right into it. Johnny, that's... Uh, well, that's Roller Beethoven. Oh, yeah. a, a, a lot of A lot of his... Um, oh, they had the same... Riff. They had the same intro. Well, not, I won't say the same intro, a similar, similar. intro. Okay. Uh, they, they all began, ba da na 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 some are go, some go na 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 others go na 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 right so they're very similar but you have to understand those nuances right right so anyway so we played rollover Beethoven for the audience and being a union member I got paid scale I made a ton of money for playing for those two minutes and David Letterman goes on sabbatical during the summer so the show was repeated. I got another check, and then it was repeated a third time. I got another check, so I got a ton of money <laughs> for those two minutes. Um, it was, you know, it's pretty, pretty wild. And um, you know, I um, I thank Paul Schaefer for his uh, for his kindness and just his his brilliant um, musicianship. You know, he he's he's one of my idols as well. If you have ever uh, made a mistake as a musician, what would it be, and how? Can you? Uh, how would you avoid that in the future? Wow. Well, I mean, it depends upon the mistake that you make. If, if you're on stage playing and you and you hit a bad note or something, you know that kind of mistake. Uh, hit it again. Hit it again <laughs> and again and again, and that way people think it's intentional. Of course. Because you know when you first hit it, people are like, huh? And when you hit it again, oh, it must be. It must, it must be long. It must be a part of it. Right. Um, but also, you know. Don't draw attention to it. Of course, right. And you know, the, the, your band and musicians may know that you made a mistake, uh, or, or certainly your band, because that's not the way you played it last night. You know, something like that. But don't, you know, if, if somebody makes a mistake, you know, don't turn and look at them. Mm -hmm. you know, keep playing. Keep playing. You know, uh, you know, and if it comes around again, that same passage, try to get it right. So, uh, what about a uh, a bigger mistake that you have made that uh, or regret? Uh, that, that you did, and how can we prevent, you know, future musicians from doing something similar? Uh, give me an example. I mean, I've I've had you know crazy things happen, but I'm not, I'm Let's not sure see. about. How um, you made a wrong call, or you said something you shouldn't have without thinking about it, or uh, you came in with a wrong attitude. You you uh, didn't do your research, something like that. I no. can't recall any of those instances. I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect by any means, of course. but. Um, I can't recall those instances where I, you know, I've always been cautious about what I say because, you know, what may be funny to you may not be funny to somebody else in the audience. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you avoid making uh, jokes about religion or... or hot uh, topic issues. Yeah, hot topic issues. I mean, I have my opinion, certainly. Of course. 
And um, if there's something, you know, that I'm very firm about, I might say something. Uh, but I don't, you know, uh, put things out there and, you know, that, that are going to cause some kind of division mm. in my audience. Speaking about division, you also uh, have a whole career. Have about a whole career about <laughs> you like that segue? Yeah. And, and of course, in that side, you know, I'm very adamant about what I feel, what I believe. Yeah. So tell me the, the first time you encountered a KKK member. The, fir the first time or the first positive time? The first time. Well, uh, this was back in the 80s, and um, I finished playing a gig, and there was an all-night restaurant, open all night, and um, kind of a rough place. And I pulled into the uh, parking lot. As I was pulling into the parking lot, I saw a man straddled across a woman on the sidewalk. She was on her back, mm. and he was sitting like on her chest. And there were like three or four other guys standing nearby watching. And he was smacking her in the face and banging her head into the sidewalk. The guys straddled across her. And these other guys just standing there were just watching. Right? And I'm, I'm driving, I'm parking. I'm like looking at this. Uh, and I, I was parked, I don't know, maybe 40 feet away. And um, when I got out of my car and I closed, the, I slammed my door, it, it, it kind of like shocked the guy. He like mm -hmm. looked up and looked at me. And I don't know, can, can we use profanity on this uh, thing? Or no, probably not. Um, uh, well, because I, I want to keep the... If you're going to use the hard N-word, is that what, is that what you're... Well, that was one of them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Well, any warning. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, so the guy looked up at me, and I was the only black guy standing around. And he said, what the fuck are you looking at, nigger? And that, to me, was open invitation. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I said, I'm looking at you, asshole. Well, he jumped up off of her, and he came at me. And I beat the daylights out of him. And the the three or four guys standing around, I guess they got scared or something. Um, because then somebody went inside and called the cops. Of course. The cops showed up then. So some white guy is beating the daylights out of a white woman, three or four white guys standing around, watching. not doing anything but watching. And then a black guy beats the daylights out of the white guy beating the daylights out of the white woman. Somebody goes and calls the cops. None, none of black guys in trouble. Right. Right. Okay, so um, these cops, well, th this guy, he's, he's like laid out. Mm -hmm. And so the cops come. You know, he's getting up. He's all bloody, whatever else. And um, I'm telling now, something was odd because the, uh, the two cops showed up, and they were county cops, Frederick County cops. And um, they, one, one cop takes me over here, and the other cop is talking to the guy that got beat up. And something was odd. I couldn't put my finger on it at the time. I wanted this guy arrested mm -hmm. for assault on me. Now, I didn't get hurt. He got hurt. But the fact that he tried to attack me was the problem. Was the problem. Right? And they would not arrest him. They said, well, you know, we you know, we didn't see it. And I said, well, it doesn't matter. I said, you know, it, it was a fight here. He beat the daylights out of her. He tried to attack me. I let him have it. You know, 
uh, well, sir, you know, we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I want him. Re- well, we can't do that. You know, we, you know, we didn't witness it. I said, okay, I want, I want his name and everything and, and, and his whole identification. So they had to give it to me. And so what you do is you go down to the police station and you, and you fill out a warrant, mm. you know, for his, you know, for his arrest and, uh, to bring him to court or whatever for assault. So anyway, they told him that he was to leave the, uh, the premises and to not come back on this premises for 24 hours, or he would be arrested for trespassing. So they send him away, right? He leaves. Mm-hmm. So I go inside. I, I talk to the lady. I said, come on, let's go inside. I take her inside. I get some ice. I apply it to her head, where he had banged her head on the, um, on the concrete a sidewalk. And get, you know, she had a black eye, a bloody nose. Right. And I'm putting ice on there. And um, I said, listen. If you want to take this guy to court, I'll be your witness. She said, I'll be yours too. I said, okay. So, long story short, um, she had told me that she was his ex-fiance. And uh, she dumped him because he was seeing somebody else. Mm-hmm. And he had gotten this girl pregnant. All right. So, <clears throat> um, court day uh, rolls around. The day before court. The day before court, I get a phone call. Now, I'd already, I'd already gotten her address. I'm going to go pick her up, and we're going to ride to court together. Right? Um, the day before court, I get a phone call. And this guy says, uh, hi, my name is attorney so-and-so. I represent so-and-so, the man you had an altercation with. This is like three months later, mm-hmm. you know, when the court thing came up, right? Uh, this, this thing happened like in February or March, and this court thing was at the beginning of July. So the, so the day before court, this attorney, his attorney calls me, and uh, he says, um, uh, I understand there was some uh, damage to, um, to your coat. What had happened was when the guy grabbed me, a button popped off my coat. That's all that, that happened. And I picked it up, put it in my pocket. I had it sewed back on for $2 at, at a dry cleaners. Gross. Okay. It was a leather coat. And in the, in the complaint, I didn't say my coat was destroyed. I said um, that, uh, that you know, uh, it had been damaged. That's all I said. And so uh, the, the complaint says, you know, what is the, what is the uh, property value? Well, the property value was like around 500 bucks for a leather coat. So he says to me, I have a check for you for $500. And he says, uh, Mr. So-and-so is, is very sorry that this happened. You know, he apologizes to you, and uh, we have a check for you for $500. You know, if you'd like to come by my office and uh, sign a release, you know, you're dropping the charges. We'll give you the check and um, call it a day. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, um, how did you get my phone number? And he says, well, it's on, it's, on, it's on your complaint. I have a copy of your complaint against my client. I said, so essentially your client had my phone number. He said, well, yeah, but he gave me the complaint. I said, yes, but he had my phone number. Well, in a manner of speaking, yes, he did. I said, okay, well, this incident happened, you know, like wh- whatever date it was, two or three months ago. I said, if he's so sorry, why didn't he call me the next day himself and tell me he's sorry and offer to pay uh, any damages? He says, well, the point is, we have to check now. You know, would you like to come in my office, sign this waiver? I said, no. I said, I want to go to court. <laughs> he goes, well, why would you want to go to court, Mr. Davis? 
um, you know, you're, you're seeking damage for your coat. Uh, we, we have a check for a new coat. I said, that's not the point. I said, I want to, I want to go to court. He goes, well, you know, you can go to court, but you know, your, 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 this case may not be called until all day long, and you know, you, you're going to miss work, and you'll be sitting in the courtroom all day. Well, what this idiot didn't know was, I'm a musician. Right. <laughs> I got time. I have time. I can sit in court all day, right? You know, my gig's not, not until nighttime or whatever, right? Unless I'm doing a you know, recording session. Right. And so uh, anyway, I, he, he got mad and hung up on me. So then the next day, I go uh, down and pick up this lady. And on the way to the courthouse, she tells me, this guy is a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So, I mean, it didn't matter to me. Right. I didn't care if, if, if he was a Klansman. I didn't care what he was. Uh, I didn't like the idea. He was a man, just like myself, mm -hmm. beating the daylights out of, a woman. out of a woman. And I put a stop to it. You know, the Klan had nothing to do with, 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 with it. Uh, if I had known that before, I still would have done the same thing. You know? Anyway, so he was also a, fire, a fireman. That explained the behavior of the cops. They knew mm -hmm. him. They knew him, and he was drunk, and so uh, you know they kind of like slapped him on the wrist. Say, hey, you come on, man, you know, you know, leave, leave the property, you know, we're gonna, you know, let you slide this time, right? So we, so we get there. When I walk into the courtroom with this Klansman's fiance, his face turned beet red. It was unbelievable, right? And he's there with his new girlfriend, this pregnant girl. And they're sitting on, 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 on the pew, on the bench, right? And she has a sweater that's sitting beside her. So we sat on the other side. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, state's attorney com comes in the courtroom and starts calling off the docket. You know, so-and-so versus so-and-so. People would say present. So-and-so versus so-and-so. Present, present. You know, um, you know so-and-so you know, so versus, you know, Daryl Davis versus so-and-so. I said present. He like, looked over at me. He goes, uh, Mr. Davis, I have a seat over here, please. So he singled me out. So I put me over on a separate uh, bench on the side. So I went over there and sat down on the side. He kept reading through the docket, making sure everybody was there, crossing off people who, who were not present. And then when he finished running the docket, he says, come with me. I came with him. We go into, into the state's attorney's office. And he says, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I understand you know, that, uh, that everything's been settled. You know, if you just want to sign this, uh, this waiver right here, uh, you, you know, you, uh, you, you can be on your way. I said, no. Everything's not so. What, what are you talking about? He says, well, attorney so-and-so said that he has your check, and, and you know, you, uh, you, you, know you, you all talk on the phone, and you just take the check and be done. I said, no. I said, I want my day in court. He says, well, why would you want your day in court? You know, you, you're here for damages for, for some property. The man has a check. The man is sorry. Why don't you take, take your check and go? I said, No. And, you know, and then what I realized at that point is just like the cops knew the fireman, of course the state's of attorney course, knows the yeah, lawyer. Yep. You know? And um, so they want to get me out of there. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no. And so he says, okay, stay here for a second. I'll be right back. He goes, he comes back with that attorney. And the guy says, hi, Mr. Davis, how are you doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, he shakes my hand. And, you know, I got your check. I said, look, I want my day in court. And so they look at each other, and, and they realize, I'm not budging. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mr. Davis, go have a seat in the courtroom. So I leave the two of them in there. I don't know what they talked about, but I go back to the courtroom, and then I go back and sit with her. 
She's like, what's going on? I said, don't worry about it. You know, we, we're good. So, so then, long story short, um, <clears throat> our case finally gets called. And the attorney tells the judge that his client was celebrating a promotion. Uh, he, he'd been promoted to lieutenant in the county fire department. And they're having a big party for him. He'd been out drinking. And uh, he'd gotten into an altercation with Mr. Davis, and, uh, and it resulted in some violence, and he's very sorry. That's what he told the uh, thing, to, to the, to the judge. judge. He, he, not, he did not mention one no, word about the woman. About the woman. And so the judge calls me forward, and um, I come forward, and I told exactly what happened. And I said, Your Honor, in fact, she's sitting right here. He called her forward, right? And she told what happened, that this guy was beating the daylights out of her because he wanted her and his fiance. He wanted his cake and eat it too. He, you know, she, she was not going to dump him, in other words. Right. Right? The fiance knew nothing about this woman, nothing. She now she's sitting on the first pew behind the dependent table. She picked up her sweater and threw it at his back, hit him in the back. Wow! And she got it and walked out of the courtroom. So now he's even more red in the face. Of course. Well, so the judge ordered him to pay the five hundred dollars to me, but he was not to to contact me directly. He was to send the money to his attorney, and the attorney would send it to me. That way we'd have no contact, right? Okay, so uh, he says to, to the defendant, uh, Mr. So-and-so, how long will it take you to, to amass the $500? And the guy, Gary, say, I have it right here. The attorney jumped in and said, 30 days, Your Honor, and then looked over at me and smiled. Like he's gonna make me wait thirty days, like it's gonna right. hurt me, right? Because five hundred dollars is gonna is gonna break me or something. Of course, right? So the uh, the judge said, okay, Mr. You know, Mr. So and So, you know, you give the the, the uh, attorney the check within thirty days, send it to Mr. Davis, and then he he um, he suspended jail time, but gave him community service and had him pay a fine, mm -hmm. um, and told him you know straighten up his act. You know, he appreciates his work in the fire department. But this kind of behavior is, is you know, is not, uh, you know, condoned. And so we're walking out of the court. I'm walking with the fiancé, right, the, the ex-fiancé. I don't know where the uh, current one went. She left the, court, the courtroom. So the, uh, the defendant and his attorney are walking behind us, a little ways behind us. The attorney runs up and whispers in my ear, well, I was about to go out the door. And it will be 30 days. And I said, as long as you pay it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, within 30 days, I got my check. Um, I ran into that guy again, not the attorney, the, the, the guy that I beat up. I ran into him again uh, probably about a year later. I was walking into that same restaurant, and there was a bank of pay phones on the wall. And he was standing talking on the phone facing the door. And when he saw me come in, he turned around and faced the, the phone so he wouldn't have to look at me. That's funny. But that, you know, that, that was the first time I ran into a, to a Klansman, you know, that, that I met, you know, that I know of. Um, but the next time was, you know, was a lot more positive. Yes. You know, if you can say anything positive about the Ku Klux Klan. Of course. But um, <clears throat> I had, um, I, I was playing in a country, in a country band, country music band. And uh, I was the only black person in the band, and usually the only black person anywhere we played. We played at a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge. 
in Frederick. And the Silver Dollar Lounge had a reputation of being an all-white lounge. Uh, there were no signs, but, you know, you if you were black, you knew you, you were not there. welcome there. Right. So here I was. Now, the band had played there before. Mm. It was my first time. And so we finished playing a set, and um, I'm following the band to go sit down at the band table or whatever, and I felt somebody come up from behind me and put their arm across my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in here, and I see the whole band in front of me walking to the table. So I'm turning around like trying to see, you know, uh-oh, you know, what's going on in here, right? And it was this white guy, and he was a lot older than me. I'd say at least 15, 18 years. Big smile on his face. He says, man, I sure love your all's music. And I said, thank you. Appreciate that. Shook his hand. Everything's cool. And he points at the stage. He says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't said, never seen you before. I said, you know, he goes, where'd you come from? And I said, well, I just joined the band, but yes, you probably did see them because they told me they played here before. And uh, he says, yeah, man, I love your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I, that was not offensive to me, but I was surprised mm. that this guy did not know, as old as he was, older than me, that he did not, uh, he, he grew up more Jerry Lee Lewis than I did, right? Um, I didn't, you know, I mean, yes, I grew up with that music, but five years after the fact, right? Of course, right. Um, but he grew up with it, with it. I mean, he was there. He played probably Jerry Lee's age. And um, I, said, I said to him, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis, Lewis learned how to play? He said, what are you talking about? I said, Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where that rockabilly, rock and roll style came from. Oh, no, 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 I ain't never heard no black man play like that, except for you. And but he, uh, I said, look, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. He didn't believe me. But he insisted that I come back to his table, let, let him buy me a drink. I don't drink alcohol. I never did. But I, I went to his table with him, you know, super nice, friendly guy. And I, I had a cranberry juice. And he paid the waitress. He took his glass, and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And now I'm even more mystified. Like, right. how can how's this be? Yeah, how's that possible, given my background? Mm -hmm. Because at that point in time, I had sat down with thousands of white people or anybody and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. How is it that this guy had never done that? So innocently, I asked him why. He stared down at the tabletop. He didn't answer me. And I said, why again? He had a buddy sitting next to him. His buddy elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, tell me. He looked back at me just as plain as day, and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. I started laughing because I know a lot about the Klan. I know a whole lot about the Klan. They don't just come up and hug some black guy and want to buy him a drink and hang out and mm -mm. praise their talent or whatever. So I think this guy is joking with me. I'm trying to rationalize why he said this. I'm thinking, okay, he thinks I'm jerking him around about knowing Jerry Lee Lewis and Jerry Lee learning something from black people, so he's going to jerk me around about the plan. It's funny. I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his Klan membership card. I recognize the red circle with the white cross, red blood drop. Whoa, this thing is real. Hold up. <laughs> yeah, hold up. It's not funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Wipe my eyes real quick. Right. 
So I give it back to him. And, you know, we talk about the Klan and some other things. But this guy was very friendly and very, you know, into how could I play like this. Um, but he gave me his phone number and wanted me to contact him anytime I was to return to this uh, venue with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, mm. meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, mm -hmm. to see, as he put it to me, the black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. I'm not sure what he called me to his friends, but he called me the black guy right. <laughs> you know, in my face. And um, I said, okay. So I began calling this guy. You know, we, we, we got on a rotation with other bands. Every six weeks, we'd, we'd roll into the place. I'd call him, and he'd come out, and he'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen. And uh, you know, they'd watch me play. They'd gather around near the stage. They'd get out on the dance floor and dance to our music. And you know, they came you know, you know, dressed in, in regular clothes, not, of course, very, not yeah. the robes. Yeah. And on the break, I would, uh, I would make my way over to his table, say hello. Most of them would stay there you know, and want to meet me. They were curious. But a couple of them would always get up and walk away when they saw me coming. So the implied message was, you know, we don't want to shake your hand. We don't want to touch you. We don't want to talk to you. We, we just want to look at you. You know, so that was fine. And, um, you know, so that's, that, that was the, the story of how I met, you know, the first positive uh, experience. So but, that, but, that is, but that was uh, was a big inspiration also. Oh, I'm sure. You know, that led to me writing my book. Um, because I would later get in contact with that guy and, and, and persuade him to hook me up with, with the clan leader. Yeah, exactly. And all that story, if, you, if you're curious more about that story, Joe Rogan, uh, you did an episode of Joe Rogan. And that uh, that details that entire uh, journey from you meeting this gentleman that you just said, and then uh, finding out where Roger Kelly is, meeting him, talking to him, and uh, the Nas National Socialist Socialist Movement, yep. they right. like literal Nazis of America. Yeah, uh, and talking to them and getting to know them and, and uh, bringing them uh, bringing them alongside you and uh, having them uh, reject their ideology. Right, okay, so, um, well, I just, you know, s skim through it for you to give you a, a, a bigger overview. In traveling around the world, I can tell you something. No matter how far I go from our country, the United States, whether it's next door to Canada or next door to Mexico, or whether it's halfway around the globe, no matter how different the people I encounter may be, they don't look like me. They don't speak like me. They don't worship as I do. I always conclude one thing. Mm -hmm. No matter how many differences I see, everybody I encounter is a human being. And as such, we all want these five core values in our lives. Everybody, no matter where they are, they want to be loved. They want to be respected. They want to be heard. They want to be treated fairly and truthfully. And they want the same things for their family as we want for our family. And if we can learn to apply those five core values or any of those values, when we find ourselves in an adversarial situation or we find ourselves in a culture or society in which we are unfamiliar or uncomfortable, I will guarantee that the navigation will be much more smooth and much more positive. So I've always, you know, I've always expressed those values when I encounter different, you know, different people. 
Um, and, I mean, right now you and I are talking about race, but this also applies to any hot topic. In fact, momentarily, let's, let's take race off the table for a second. Sure. Okay, and there, there are a number of hot topics out there. Abortion. Abortion. Um, nuclear weapons, global warming, the war between Russia and Ukraine, the war in the Middle East. Taiwan uh, and China. More Taiwan and China. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, uh, the the last presidential election. The, All the these future things. presidential election. And the future presidential <laughs> election, for that matter. Okay. Um, uh, the insurrection, whatever. Mm -hmm. These are all hot topics. You're on one side, somebody's on the other side. Apply those values, and you will see, you know, while, while you may not persuade that person or they persuade you, at least you have the conversation, all right? And you learn more about why that person believes the way they believe, and they learn more about you. And that, that's what you need, because I'm a firm believer when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. They're talking. Mm -hmm. You know, they may be disagreeing, but at least they're talking. Civil discourse. Exact right. civil discourse. It's when the conversation ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So you want to keep the conversation going. And a missed opportunity, a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Nothing gets resolved until you talk about it. You know, so having that conversation, even if minds are not changed during that initial conversation, seeds are planted, and you continue it, and eventually, somebody goes one way or the other. You know, now of course there'll be people who will never change; they'll go to their graves believing whatever they believe. But if they are if they are factually wrong, incorrect, then chances are they will change. But this is where we have the difference between ignorance and stupidity. Mm -hmm. And now, this is my definition, just so I set the context for any of, you, of your uh, viewers or listeners to understand where I'm coming from. Some people consider ignorance and stupidity to be syn uh, synonymous. I don't. To me, an ignorant person is someone who makes a bad choice or a wrong decision because he or she doesn't know. Doesn't doesn't have the facts. Doesn't have the proper information to make the uh, the proper choice or decision. Um, you give them the facts, they can make you. You have alleviated their ignorance, you know, and they can make the right decision. A stupid person is someone who has the facts and still makes the wrong decision, <laughs> right? So can't fix stupid. You can't fix stupid. For example, you know, if if we have a room. And we paint the room, but we don't post uh, post signs that say uh, wet paint, stay off the walls. Anybody walking into that room is ignorant to the fact that these walls are wet. And I don't use the word ignorant in a derogatory sense, but in the sense of unaware. Unaware. Exactly. A neutral term. Exactly. So they come in, and somebody goes and leans against the wall, and now he has paint on his clothes due to that ignorance. We can prevent that. We can put up signs that say, wet paint, stay off the walls. We can stand in the doorway and tell each person coming in, hey, gather around the center. We just painted these walls 10 minutes ago. They're still wet. So now everybody in the room has the facts. Everybody has the proper information. But still one person goes and leans on the wall, and now he wants to know, why is there paint on my clothes? It's because you're stupid. <laughs> okay? You, you have the facts. You know? I can't fix that. All right? So... 
the good thing is this. There is a cure for ignorance. Mm. That cure is called education and exposure. And that is where there is no cure for stupidity. Right. If you give somebody the education and they don't do anything with it, nothing you can do. All right? So when I deal with these people, I always am, tra am trans transparent. If I know something to be factually true, I'm going to say, this is a fact. Two plus two is four. It's four everywhere on this planet. I mean, I don't know what it is on Mars, but it's <laughs> here it's four. All right? Um, and I, I will present evidence to back up my fact. If something is an opinion, I will tell you. I'll say, listen, this is my opinion. Now, I strongly believe my opinion, but it is an opinion. Of course. And I let them know. You know, I'm not going to try to force an opinion on them. It's not fact-based. It's, it's my opinion. And people appreci appreciate that transparency, you know, uh, because I'm not trying to tell them something, you know, that I don't, don't know to be factual, but they need to believe it. No. I have, uh, we're kind of ending out off our time here. I have one last story that I would love to hear. And uh, you've also dealt with black nationalists, black separatists as well, as opposed to white nationalists and separatists. Yes. What is there a difference? Is how do you interact with someone who who looks like you in skin color, and uh, and and they call you all these wild things? How do you interact with someone like that, as opposed to a white nationalist? I've been called wild things all my life, um, by white people, by black people, by people who just disagree with me. Um, I don't let it, you know, get under my skin. Because I have seen much more than most of those people. I'll put it this way. I've seen more than, than all of those people who call me those wild things. Uh, as I said, I've done a lot of traveling. All right? Um, and, and again, I emphasize that the amount of travel that I've done that is more than most people, most Americans, I'll say, uh, white or black, uh, does not make me a better human being. But it does give me a broader and better perspective on humanity. In fact, <clears throat> I will quote for you my very favorite quote of all time, which is by Mark Twain, and it's called The Travel Quote. Mm -hmm. And Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. You know, so I try to share with people what I have learned uh, from my experiences, and hopefully they can learn some of that through me vicariously, you know, uh, because they've not had those experiences of travel, of being in different cultures, different, you know, societies, religions, etc. And if I can share that, and, they're, and they have just a slight opening in their mind, you know, and then maybe open a little, you know, it grows to be a more open mind, they can see that, and then they begin to change. But one thing we don't want to do and <clears throat> is this, very important. I don't change people's minds. A lot of the media makes a mistake of saying, you know, black musician converts X number of neo-Nazis or KKK people or white supremacists or whatever, racists. No, I did not convert them. They converted themselves. Yes. I am the impetus 
for many of those conversions, well over 200, all right? But I did not convert them. They did it themselves. I was the impetus. And you've heard the saying, one's perception is one's reality. Mm -hmm. This is so true. Whatever somebody perceives, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's real or not, is their reality. And you cannot change their reality. All right? So if their perception is what creates their reality. You gotta change perception. You gotta change their perception. Okay? That's what you do. See, people try to go after the reality. All right. Right. That's like saying, you know, um, there is this uh, this blemish on top of my skin. And um, you know, someone says, Oh, you know, it looks it, it looks like cancer. Uh, let you know, let, let's put some neosporin on it. You know, that's that that that's that's treating, you know, that that's that's addressing the reality, not 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 the not the uh the, 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 the nucleus, the, the problem, yeah. exactly. The symptom, not the problem. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you gotta go down to the bone and, and put the, the chemo or radiation or whatever in there, right? Not That's just right. address the symptom, okay? So so their reality may be the symptom. Um what you do is don't attack their reality. Hmm. Offer them a better perception. Or perceptions if they resonate with your perception they in turn will change their own reality mm. and an example I'll give you is this let's say you have a, a younger brother seven or eight year old whatever and he goes to a magic show with his buddies and he comes home and tells you he's all excited can't believe what he saw you know he tells you Corey you know um, the magician on stage he uh, he asked for a female volunteer, and 50 women raised their hands, and he picked out one, brought her up on stage, and he had her climb into this long box and stick her feet out the hole here and stick her head out the hole there. Sawed her right now. Yeah, and he closed the lid, and he sawed her right in. He told her to wiggle her feet. She wiggled her feet. He sawed her right in half, told her to wiggle her feet again. She wiggled her feet. He cut her in half. And you say, oh, no, 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 you know, it, it, no, there's a trick to it. No, I'm telling you, I saw it, you know, you were not there. I saw it with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. You are attacking his reality by telling him he didn't see something. He knows what he saw. Mm-hmm. That magician took a chainsaw and cut that woman right down the middle, cut her in half. And even after he cut her in half, she was still able to wiggle her feet. She got right, up, right back well, down and, in one and, piece. Well, to, to make it even more, more believable, he te- yeah, he tells you that the magician separated the boxes. You know, he took one half of the feet and, and put them on the other side of the stage and the half of the head to the other side of the stage. And then he walked over and talked to the lady's head, and she talked back to him. <laughs> and then he brought the two halves back together and did some kind of incantation, abracadabra stuff, and then opened the lid, and she climbed out. Full form, no blood, nothing, back together. He cut her in half, and he put her back together. You're like, listen. That's, that's an illusion. No, it's not. You know, he, he goes off on you because you're attacking his reality. And you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. All right? You, you were not there. You cannot tell him what he saw was, was not real. He knows it was real. All right? So don't attack his reality. You say to him, listen, you give him a better perception. You say, listen, I hear what you're saying, but do you think that maybe, just maybe, perhaps, it's possible that when this guy asked for a female volunteer to raise her hand, and 50 women did that, he picked out one, that maybe the one he picked out works for him. Right. Maybe he planted her in the audience. She knows the trick. 
and she travels all around the country with him and she's always sitting in the same seat in whatever theater mm -hmm. right and so when she comes up and um, and he has her get in the box maybe there's a pair of mannequin legs laying in the floor of the box and she just picks them up and shoves them out the hole she brings her own knees up under her chest so her whole body is on that half of the box right right and so when he tells her to wiggle her feet she just shakes those 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 poles and the, sh the shoes wiggle outside there right and then when he separates the two halves she can no longer move those feet did you see those feet move over there or? right so he has to direct your attention away from the feet so he walks over there by talking to the head and her whole body's there so then when he brings the two halves back together she simply pulls those things in and leaves them there and stretches herself out and she's wearing the same the, 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 the same mannequin legs are wearing the same stockings same shoes as, as she is and she climbs out and then your little brother says hmm I guess that could be the only way that would work you have offered him a better perception and he has resonated with it and thus changed his own reality and that's the way we need to have conversations you know not by attacking somebody for their beliefs regardless of how horrific or ridiculous or whatever they may be you know you don't know where that person is coming from you don't know their experiences why they believe these things okay um, so listen to them you know, you know get a grip as, as to as to what made them believe this stuff uh, and then you might say oh okay yeah I, I, I can see now why why they might believe that even though it's not true mm -hmm. offer them a better perception rather than attack them for their beliefs and then let them come to that perception make that perception their reality and and don't you know don't be impatient it may not happen overnight because perhaps they've had that reality since day one right and now they're 50 years old or something right so it's just like you know you see this big gut on me right <laughs> I wasn't born like this you know I was you know see some of these pictures behind me pictures, yeah. I, you know, I'm slim and trim okay so if I want to lose this I'm not gonna lose it by tomorrow there's nothing no mm -hmm. pill no <laughs> exercise nothing is gonna make me lose this by tomorrow it's incremental dieting exercise etc etc right okay same thing if somebody has grown up with a certain belief system or they've had it in them for years or whatever the case may be they may not change overnight sometimes you, you might get lucky somebody the light bulb comes on boom oh wow man I've really screwed up and they flip around other times it's gradual mm -hmm. so have that kind of patience and keep the conversation going because your first conversation you are planting a seed and usually when you plan to see what do you got to do you got to come back and water and water yeah nurture it right well Daryl this has been I've had a wonderful time talking to you likewise thank you if you want to find Daryl he has a website DarylDavis.com uh, check him out there he also has Instagram at is it the at the real Daryl Davis uh real Daryl Davis yeah real Daryl Davis yeah if you want to follow uh, me and what I do and you support what I do, you can look up the story, Corey Rosen, that's C-O-R-Y-R-O-S-E-N, on all streaming platforms. You'll find us there. And if you want to search up our guests and future events, we're on Facebook.com forward slash the story Corey Rosen. Tomorrow I have on Connor Devlin. He is the uh, founder of a few big brass bands up in Lancaster, uh, Big Boy Brass and, oh, what's it called? Beans. on Street Beans. That's what they're called.
And uh, I'm really excited to talk to him. He's a tuba player by trade and larger-than-life reality uh, person. So if you want to check that out, check us out tomorrow. With all that said, I hope you guys have had a wonderful day, a wonderful time, and I hope you guys continue to have a wonderful day, and I'll see you guys later. Bye!